Craft Beer Professionals is a national network of nearly 15,000 dedicated to the growth and betterment of the craft beer industry. CBP is excited to bring our virtual community together for in-person events in 2022. CBP Connects presented by Arrive POS are workshops designed to help you grow both personally and professionally. In addition to leaving with actionable strategies, CBP Connect is an opportunity to network and learn from your fellow craft beer professionals, complete with nightly receptions and drinks on CBP. We would love for you to join us June 20th to 22nd, 2022 in St. Louis, Missouri, and or in Norfolk, Virginia, September 12th to 14th. You can learn more and claim your spot at cbpconnects.com. That's cbpconnects.com. See you there. Cheers. Hello, everybody. Finance is something that shouldn't just be skimmed over, and we hope today's conversation and the questions that are answered by our experts here provide a glimpse of insight and encourage you to dive deeper into the concepts that we'll discuss today. But first, let's get to know everybody. Nick, you are to the right of me for everybody watching. Tell everybody a little bit about who you are and what you do. And you are. I, I am muted. Um, it's been a while since you've been on one of these. I know. I know. Uh, Nick Matthews. I'm the CEO of Mainvest. We're a community investment platform focused on capital formation for small businesses, brick and mortars. Uh, one of the biggest categories we work with is breweries uh, going out and raising capital from their community to secure funding for growth or um, startup capital, uh, but usually growth, startup capital and expansion capital. Uh, yeah. And before we hop hit the live button, you mentioned you have a high percentage of main vest breweries over businesses, I should say, in the Richmond, Virginia area. Why do you think an area like that gravitates towards your model more so than, you know, other regions? I think that like a lot of the kind of sub-regional smaller towns uh, that like are, not that Richmond's like a small town, but a uh, smaller population, like the hundred to 200,000 population mark towns that are like experiencing this economic development growth. A lot of it coming from people maybe moving out of like the New York, Metro Boston, LA, San Francisco areas over the last few years, um, looking to go into homes, come to these areas. And there is a strong kind of community sense around building the communities that they want to build. And so we've seen a lot of kind of organic growth in these clusters of areas and this kind of new wave of rebuilding main streets and economic development. Awesome. Well, thanks for sharing, Nick. Audra, always a pleasure to see you. How's everything in your world? Good, good. Um, good morning from um, East Texas, actually, where I'm at um, on site working with the client this week. I live in Asheville, North Carolina. Audra Gajunas. I own Brew for Her Ledger. I'm a fractional CFO, CEO for the beer industry. Um, I've worked with roughly 300 plus clients since 2013. Um, lots of like accounting information systems, strategy, mergers, acquisitions, valuations, um, expansions, and then startups. Startups are still like my bread and butter, but startups and expansions, second um, stage growth companies. And um, yeah, I'm always trying to make things a little bit better, um, but I love this industry. So it's really good to be back. Thanks for inviting me, Andrew. Oh, always, Audra. And you mentioned startups are your bread and butter, but are they your favorite area of the craft beer industry to work with? Or do you have a certain area you really enjoy diving deep into when working with a brewery? I love startups, but I also love expansions because of the chaos. I love being able to help bring some order to chaos and developing SOPs and um, getting people excited about accounting and finance, which doesn't happen often in our industry, <laughs> but um, speaking on a level that they can understand and, and grasp concepts and really empowering the owners with tools for them to manage their business better. So 
speaking at a level that isn't an MBA a CPA necessarily, but finance for non-financial folks. And um, I love seeing eyes light up when um, they grasp a concept that they hadn't grasped before. And that's one reason I like you for so much. You make concepts that are often hard to understand so approachable. Well, thank you. Thank You're you. welcome. Even from someone like me, not a finance person by trade. So appreciate you being here, Audra. Maria, be. great to see you. I know last time we saw each other was face-to-face -face in Denver, Colorado for a wonderful panel. So great to see you virtually. How are you today? Likewise, I'm great. Yeah, thanks and for Where in me. the world are you? Because I feel bad. Kind of. <laughs> I'm, in I'm in Hawaii, so it's 6 a.m. here. And uh, that's okay. That's been my week thus far. I'm working. And uh, so the week has started every day with meetings at six. So, you know, whatever. It's a small price to pay to be here in this beautiful environment. So just really feel lucky to be able to, to come to places like this to do some of my work. No, you're very lucky. So besides working in Hawaii, what, where do you come in and help breweries with? I'm a CPA. I specialize in beverage alcohol. And um, I lead a practice group at my firm, which is located in Los Angeles. The, the practice group is over food and beverage. But my particular work that I do when I'm doing client facing work, it's contract CFO services. So I might be helping them plan, you know, large business decisions like, is it time for me to build a new building, a new facility, or do I want to expand via, you know, a contract manufacturing situation? Or, um, you know, we might analyze what geographies that client's in and what's the right strategy. Like, is it a good time to start thinking about other states? Is the pricing model such that I can actually make money when I do this? Um, supporting M&A activity. Um, sometimes I've worked where, you know, one party has purchased another party and it's integrating that subsidiary into the mothership. So that's some of the, the stuff that I work on, too. Um, and then our team as a whole can be like an outsourced accounting department. But my particular things that I do kind of, you know, are more in what I just rattled off. So. And just like I asked Audra, what's your favorite, you know, little area to work in in your space? Um, I think the M&A space is really exciting. It's so uh, there's a lot of pressure around it and I kind of thrive in pressure. So um, I find that really exciting. And I like to work with companies that are mature enough that they do have an appreciation for strong processes and, and strong systems. Um, it can be frustrating to work with people who don't have an appreciation for that because then you're sort of rolling a boulder uphill. So um, sometimes that appreciation comes with time and you don't necessarily have that right off the bat. Absolutely. Well, thanks for being here. And last but not least, Jason, initially I asked you to come, then you said you couldn't come. Now you're here. So glad to have you. Yeah, glad to be here. So um, thanks, Andrew. And, um, you know, just what I, a little bit of what I do is, um, you know, I work for United Community Bank. We have a craft beverage lending specialty, kind of like everyone else. We, we focus on that uh, in kind of my little niche. Um, and so we work with uh, breweries, distilleries, wineries, kind of everybody in the craft beverage space to help provide funding for them to either make dreams come true or to help further their dreams with expansion funding. So uh, that's really kind of what we do. Most of it's with the SBA, uh, but we do some conventional uh, and we are just kind of keeping everyone moving forward with the right financing. Awesome. Well, Jason, because you have the name Beer Banker in your little description today, I'm going to start with this question with you. It hasn't, wasn't where I initially planned on starting, but you know, why are there special brewery finance institutes out there? And can the average bank provide comparable rates? Uh, so 
I think I would say there's probably in pockets I'm finding as I continue to do this, that there are a, a kind of a, a few banks uh, regionally. And then there's a couple of us that are kind of focused nationally. And so the, the reason that people would have that specialty is uh, because it does take a lot of knowledge. It takes a lot of um, thought leadership and it takes a lot of, you know, just kind of understanding the industry uh, because it's not exactly, um, comparable, right? One of the things that a bank needs to learn pretty early on is that it takes a while to uh, have a brewery uh, ramp up, right? So if you think that a brewery is just going to turn on and they're going to start making money, it's it's not uh, there. And so a lot of banks get pretty impatient with that uh, and it makes them a little bit nervous. And so that's partly why there's especially there's some banks out there that have realized um, that they like it more than others. And so they're you know trying to grow that. Um, to answer the second part of the question is, can can they can everyone offer comparable rates? Um, the, the answer is yes. In the fact that if they understand it and understand that they want it, they can offer whatever rate they want. Right. So um, the, there, there's kind of a misconception on the rate side, especially with the SBA. The SBA determines the maximum rate that you can um, charge. It doesn't. Do the minimum rate. So if you really, really want to buy a deal, right, if there's just a brewery you have to do business with, um, you can continue to lower the rate. Uh, and so a, a lot of it, I would tell people, uh, is risk-based pricing. So your pricing on your loan is going to be how risky it is. If it's a slam dunk, um, CR, uh, commercial real estate deal with great guarantors and really great operating, you're going to price that a little bit uh, less. And if it's a super risky startup where, you know, everyone's terrified you're going to get paid back, that one's probably going to have max pricing on it. Awesome. We're going to dive a lot more into lending and financing shortly, but we're going to back up a sec. I know so many of you love working with startups. So speaking of brilliance and planning, should they work with a professional business plan company or SBDC, you know, when they're creating their business plans? Anyone have any thoughts if that's you know a good strategy to go or if they're working on it by themselves? Any recommendations, especially on the finance side of things, making projections? I found that in working with our local SBDCs in Western North Carolina and just in the South in general, um, they're not, the pro formats are not tailored to our industry. They're very basic. So I think it's great to go to the SBDC for a local, some education, some free tools and resources but in terms of getting your specific pro forma up and ready to go, um, I would turn to a professional and somebody that is in the industry. Um, I also like using Life Plan for organizing the narrative of the business plan. Um, I think it's a great place to start. It's like 20 bucks a month, you know, a nominal fee. I um, mean, it makes your plan look really pretty. But in terms of um, industry, Definitely not specific enough. Most SBDCs do not have that sort of deep experience that a startup really should be looking for. I'll throw in um, my experience in working with startups. I, I think that business owners will often put together their own business plan and the, the story is good, the narrative is good, but there there isn't clearly the knowledge of how financial statements work together. So in other words, you know, if you have a three statement pro forma with that being your balance sheet, income statement and cash flow, they all need to tie together. Like there needs to be continuity among them. And so, you know, I've seen 
business plans come across where there's some numbers put together, but it's like clearly not holistically thought out. And if you, and I understand that from the business owner's perspective, but if you put that in front of a potential investor or a potential lender, then that's like, you know, clearly something that they're going to pick out right away. And um, again, not that it's not understandable, but I think it speaks to how prepared a business owner is for that conversation when they put this business plan in front of somebody. So, um, you know, first impressions count. And when you're either asking for money or looking to get an investor, I think it's really important to have that financial piece tied up because, you know, that's, that's the crux of, of what you're selling. Um, unless it's like, you know, getting money from mom and dad who, you know, want to see you succeed in your passion. So, um, just running those numbers by a professional who understands finance and, and can make sure that like the mechanics of what you're presenting work. And Nick, I love to kind of pose a similar question your way. You know, you interact with a lot of businesses. What correlations do you see between breweries who have well thought out business plans and the success on a platform like yours? I mean, it's, I don't want to say night and day, uh, but it is like, especially for a startup business, um, like a pre-revenue business looking to get into a space, maybe you've done some home brewing. Um, you know, really when you're thinking from like an investor standpoint and the investor hat, like if they don't know you personally, all that, like the one thing they have to look at in comp against like other industry standards is your pro forma and like the operating model of the business plan. And you can have like 20 years of experience in like the food and bev space and that's incredibly valuable. You can have a great location and like, you know, have like a sweet deal with like the landlord and like that, that's awesome. And all that ties in. But when you look at a balance sheet that doesn't balance, that's a red flag. And when you see a business model that, you know, talks about in like two years, you know, revenue grows 300% because you've secured distribution like fully regionally, like that's a red flag too. I think like conservative, respectable business models that don't like plan on exponential growth and then being able to talk through that exponential growth and the fact that that is a plan, but this is the sustainability model for the core business in lieu of that actually happening or that not happening at the aggressive timeline that you as a really passionate entrepreneur want it to happen. Um, that kind of like base setting really does um, show for investors and help them make a decision. Awesome. Thanks, Nick. Jason, you interact with so many different breweries out there from small to large. Any recommendations with regards to things they should have in their business plan that you look for? Uh, so I kind of joke, the first one is the city and state. I look at a lot from across different places and sometimes they'll just have a business plan. I'm like, I, I don't really know where this is. So, um, you know, kind of understanding that is is something there. But, um, you know, the, the biggest part is kind of understanding, um, you know, especially on the startup side, it's, you know, being more than just a homebrewer, right? There, there's a lot of homebrewers that want to start. And the fact that you're a homebrewer is great. But, you know, what have you done to try and further your career? We've, we've gotten to a place in the industry now with over 9,000 breweries that if you really wanted to do something, you probably could go sweep floors or do something at a brewery to try and help you build some professional resume. On the expansion, I always tell people what I want to know is, what makes you different, right? So why why are you people buying your beer? What's making you a little different? What what are you going to be able to replicate? What what is it, what's the kind of the problem that you are having um, right now? And it, it's funny because um, you know the the differentiator that everyone thinks right now is they have locally sourced ingredients, and 
you know, that's kind of the definition of craft to me. That doesn't make you necessarily unique in the fact that you're using barley from your state or you're using hops from this one provider. It's really what makes you unique is um, like someone today was sending me something. They said they have kind of the coolest can art or can labels ever. And I'm like, well, that they do. It's pretty cool. Right. And that that's probably a reason someone will buy pull something off the shelf, at least initially. So, you know, what what makes you different? And it could be the awards. It could be the type of beer. It could be the process. Uh, but just the base ingredients really isn't it. So kind of understanding this. And then I, I would echo that they don't have to be 100 pages. I see a lot of 100 page business plans that don't say anything. I'd rather see a five page business plan that's clear, concise. and really tells me what what you're going to do, who's going to do it and why we should give you money is, is kind of the secret of the sauce. And you talk a lot about just being different and how they're going to stand out. But it really comes down to how can you tell that story to those who matter and those who are going to spend money and you know purchase your beer? Yeah. And the numbers have to make sense. That's the biggest thing too, that you're trying, it's a marketing document. So you're proving the financial viability of your business model. And so knowing that, you know, you're meeting a debt service coverage ratio of at least 1.2, there's different gates that you have to pass through. It's not just, here's my P&L and here's my cash flow. It has to prove that you can actually stand on your own two feet, make those debt service payments and still have enough money left over to reinvest back in the brewery. So yeah, making sure that the, you have those metrics that you're meeting. And just talking about business plans for one more minute, how have you seen business plans change the past couple of years through the pandemic? I, I would say that they've gotten a little bit um, more concise. People know that they're not gonna get a three or four or $5 million just blank check anymore. They have to be a lot more concise with here's how we're going to spend the money. Here's how we're going to get the return on investment. I saw an article the other day where it basically says investors in the beer industry have gotten to a place where um, you, they're, they're not going to let you have the 10 or 15 years that they did before. It's got to be a lot more typical. So, you know, it's a lot more business centric and um, people are thinking, hey, look, this is the maximum as, as opposed to the minimum that I need. Uh, they're 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 really kind of uh, sharpening their pencils and, and razors and trying to figure out how to make it a clear, concise deal. Thanks, Jason. Now, this is a question to completely mix things up. How can you tell if your bookkeeper is keeping the books correctly? Audra? When they have this financial expertise, so they might not know. So what should they, you know, what can they do to make sure they're being done correctly? You gotta have more than one set of eyes on them. Yeah, like it doesn't, it for any business of any size. So if you're an owner who doesn't look at the books, number one, that needs to change. But number two, if you don't know what you're looking for, you do need to hire someone who does and have them look at it monthly or quarterly. Um, but I mean, there, there are so many instances of malfeasance with finance, not only in this industry, but all just because no one's watching what's going on. Mm -hmm. And it is really easy for that to happen, easier than we would like. So, you know, work with your CPA to review the books. Um, and then there's the whole concept of internal controls and separation of duties, which means that, you know, you separate what people are doing so that you minimize the, the risk of malfeasance. But for small businesses, sometimes they don't have the resources to put the proper internal controls in place. So, you know, you need to do the best you can as you're growing to the point where you can really have proper internal controls. And um, in the interim, you know, make sure that you're getting multiple sets of eyes on those books. And, you know, there's some basic things too, like if your bookkeeper is preparing the checks to go out, 
you need to review the bills and sign the checks before they go in the mail. Just some, some basics like that. Anybody else have anything like to add to that one? I mean, I, I would say like from an operating or founding team perspective, we, you know, we've had a, over 150 breweries raised on the platform uh, to date. And like one of the strongest correlators to both a successful raise um, as well as like 100% of them are in good standing now. So we actually haven't had a brewery deep ball or anything, which is amazing. Um, but uh, in terms of like the ones we talk to, there's definitely a strong, strong correlation uh, between a founding team that has like um, someone in the financial space on that founding team. Um, like the breakdown of like having, you know, the, the home brewer returned to like passionate brewer and like the ex finance guy, I think or gal is like the most, you know, common breakdown that we see for a successful brewery because there's that level of trust from the operating side. And if you're a non, like, I guess non-technical founder in the sense of like financial um, literacy or like uh, financial there's a baseline. I think that it's important to be able to get to because, you know, some, you're not going to have the resources to like farm out to like three different CPA firms and fact check all of these things. And like the level of just being able to like call baseline bullshit, it doesn't require a ton, sorry, it doesn't require a ton of expertise. And I think if, if you're feeling kind of concerns around that, um, just upping that vocational knowledge to a point that you can like have the confidence to, to call out when things aren't right. And when you see those flags, um, there, there's a level of ownership there that I think is incredibly valuable. Awesome. Thanks, Nick. Now we're going to dive into the segment where we focus a lot on raising money. We've had a lot of questions about that, but let's start with the easy one. What should someone look for in a good lender? I see the lender unmuting. unmuting, unmuting. I feel like I'm biased. Why don't why, someone else should go first? And expertise in the space, familiarity in the space. It's really key. I mean, really for any, you know, professional that you surround yourself with, they need to know your industry, but especially banking. I mean, just like Jason said earlier, having the patience, understanding what the normal timeline is for turning profitable. I think that's hugely valuable. You know, I, I would also think it's how much is that person, you know, th throw the name off the door, throw all that kind of stuff, right? It, it's who, who do you like? Do you trust what they're telling you? And are they trying to figure out how to kind of make it work, right? So there, there are plenty of times where I talk to someone and within the first 15 minutes, I'm like, hey, this isn't gonna work. You know, and I, and I but I'll spend another 30 or 45 minutes with them saying, okay, let, let me just tell you, it's not a fit for us, but here are the things that you should think of. Here are some options, right? Mainvest is one of the places where I send people, right? I know they're not on here, but I send people to WeFunder from time to time, right? Depending on what they're trying to do. Or I may, I, I joke, I say, hey, uh, you know, sometimes I'm my competition's best referral and I look and say, hey, our credit box today is this, you know, and theirs is like this. And so you fit in that little spot over there. And so for me, I wish, you know, this sounds selfish, but I wish every single brewery deal would come through me and I will just help them kind of like find the right place for it, right? And, and, and it's probably like truthfully over the last two years, I've probably referred out five times what I've closed myself, right? It's just finding the right people and then having a passion, right? And then it's, you know, there's so many lenders out there that will say, hey, this isn't going to work. Good luck, right? Well, where are you now? You've wasted some time and you don't have any better leads. Uh, but if you'll spend the time with someone who will say, hey, this isn't a fit for us, but I actually know that this person's credit box looks like this and they will they will help you with it. Um, you know, and I also try like Audra and I work together a lot. And one of the things that I'll do is I'll say, hey, 
you, you should go over there, but make sure that Audra gets a referral fee, right? I mean, like, or, or whatever, right? It's, it's important to like help, you know, just do it. And so my, my answer is the best lender is going to be the one who cares about your business and the industry. And that's going to be the answer. Awesome. We'll move into the next question. You know, as you can see from the question we've had today so far, it takes a quite a bit of money to open a brewery and the brewers are looking at all possible avenues to raise funds. And we've seen several questions asking CBP about what percent of ownership is fair to give up to an investor with no role in the business. For example, you know, is there a generally accepted benchmark for this? And, you know, if an investor puts up 75% of the capital and does 0% of the work, but the brewery owner operator puts in 25% of the capital, but does all the work, you know, who takes what share of the ownership? Are there any general statements you can make on that or thoughts? The ownership percentage doesn't have to equate to the percentage of money put in. So in that scenario of 75% of the dollars come from, or uh, well, let's say hundred percent of the dollars come from one person and they get 75% ownership and you're putting in sweat equity and you get 25%. It doesn't, it doesn't have to work that way. You can have an outsized portion of ownership, even if you're not putting in the capital, that's possible. But there are some important downstream effects that need to be recognized, like, for example, um, passive activity losses. So if if I if I'm an owner I'm, and I'm putting in sweat equity and I don't put in any cash, any capital into the endeavor. And let's say for the first three years I have losses. Well, if I'm in a pass through activity, which most of these are going to be, then I can't take advantage of any of those losses if I haven't put in any capital. So I'm not going to be able to take advantage of losses. They're allocated to me until the business gets profitable enough that I'm allocated profits to counteract the losses from the past. So, you know, you, it, it can be a rude awakening from a tax perspective because you'll look at your income statement for the year and it's like, Oh, I lost, you know, $300,000, but now I'm still paying taxes. This isn't even helping me from a tax perspective. So that's one important thing to recognize. Um, also, another common provision that's in operating agreements has to do with uh, owners or investors being paid back priority returns until the business turns profitable, which means that those people who are putting in capital are required to be paid back a, a percentage, like an agreed upon percentage, maybe it's 8% of their capital investment until the time that they can start to receive regular distributions. And if you have a provision like that in your agreement, then that delays the amount of time before you as the, you know, sweat equity person gets to participate in distributions as well. So again, like a situation where you might be paying out money from your company and distributions, but you're not getting to participate in that because you never put in any capital. And, you know, it's all fair. Like it's all fair. It all makes sense, but it just can, you know, emotionally, it can be a hard pill to swallow for someone who is putting all their time and effort in and it's their baby, but they can't participate in any of the financial spoils until whatever time period in the future. So, um, Point being is that there's no like rule of thumb. You can do anything under the sun for the most part. A lot of it depends on your your structure. Like, you know, if you're an S corporation, you can only have one class of stock and ownership. And that means that everybody who's in has equal voting rights. 
If you're a C corporation, you can have different classes of stock and different rights associated with those different classes. And then the same thing from a partnership perspective, partnerships are extremely flexible. So there are lots of avenues to get to where you want to be, but you just need to be cognizant of those downstream effects down the road. Now, Nick and Jason, you know, what are your thoughts on the situation where the owner operator is not putting in any of their own capital? I mean, we, we can talk separately. I, I think there's for, um, you know, debt financing from institutions. I think that the owner's ability to put in uh, that portion of equity is incredibly important in the underwriting process. Uh, Jason, let me know. Um, but there are situations where entrepreneurs just don't simply have like the personal capital uh, to be able to put that up front. And that's where like finding alternative form revenue, finding equity investors and finding, um, you know, investment from the community through debt investment be, become options. Uh, I think one of the biggest challenges around doing equity capitalization for a brewery pre-revenue is like the valuation methodologies are incredibly challenging. And, you know, when you're talking about, should I give 75, 80% for the X dollars, if they're not going to be an operator, not to circle back to the last question. Uh, but like those, those are usually answered pretty easily uh, by having like a, like a DCF valuation of your company. Like if this company is valued pre-money at $2 million and you have an investor that's going to put in $750,000, that post-money valuation is $2.75 million, and their ownership is kind of divided out of that. And because there's a mutually agreed upon valuation for what the company is worth, it actually can be very easy to do that. However, because of the like way breweries run with the cash flow focus and like the liquidity, then you usually do add in these provisions around um, you know revenue shares or stipulated repayments that come alongside that that then overcomplicate it, which is where since they're like liquidity is really challenging for equity funding for small businesses, and so finding ways to do those distributions and remove the risk of dilution and ownership, I, I think is like a safer bet for for businesses when they're able to do that. So. Audra, you may or may not be on mute right now if you're talking to us. Oh, I am not on. Am Anymore. I? Did it work? Did it work? Okay. No, the only thing I wanted to add to that too is that vet those that are providing the funding, don't just chase the money. I have a, I often have startups that are like, oh, this person wants to provide X amount of dollars and this person wants to provide that. But outside of that they, the relationship, there is no other relationship. So you have no idea who they are as people, how they are going to be as potential business owners. Don't just chase the money because it is there from wherever you can get it. Vet those potential owners because you are going to be married to them, essentially. And they are going to be your partners. And so um, I wish more people would do their due diligence in um, vetting those people before they accept um, money from them. That's all I really wanted to add from a startup. No, Audra, that's a really great addition because it ties in directly into one of our next questions. So how does a brewery owner handle those investors who don't have an active role in the day-to-day -day operations? Because they still are a partner. Any tips for, you know, keeping that interaction healthy? Explicit expectations that are written and communicated regularly. That's what I would say would be the best practice from my side that I can offer. That's amazing advice. So I, I think it ends up going two different ways, um, you know, because we had, I, I can talk to, you know, some deals, but, you know, where someone had all the money and they gave a real small percentage to the person who's going to do all the work and 
they got the doors open and that person said, ah, yep, I had enough. Right. And so like they only had 10% equity. And so they just walked away from it. Right. And so, you know, kind of tying the two questions together, right. How, how much should someone have in it is, you know, from the bank's perspective, if you don't really have that much tied into it, you're not really that invested. And it's really easy to walk away. If you're like, ah, I put a couple thousand bucks in and I can just walk away. Right. That that's something that you don't want. Um, it also kind of, fits, um, you know, we heard a lot uh, of stories during COVID where the financial backers may have been willing to put in another 100,000 or 200 uh, or had the capability, but weren't willing, right? And they said, hey, look, I've given you as much money as I'm going to give you for my whatever, I, I'm now going to cut my losses. And so it is really important from, you know, the lending standpoint, the ownership standpoint to really kind of have those clear expectations that says, look, you know, if we get into a rough, a rough patch, I don't want you just, you know, clapping your hands and saying, hey, that was fun. Like I lost this money, but I don't, I'm not giving you any more. So, you know, I think, you know, we talked about, you know, looking in the rearview mirror, you know, we, we want we want the owners, the people who are signing to have some liquidity themselves, to have some skin in the game so they don't just walk away. Uh, but you also be able, need to be able to if you're going out and you're seeking this heavy investment, you need to understand what it is after they put their first whatever hundred thousand in. Are they going to put another hundred thousand in, or are they just going to say that one hundred thousand is is all it is? And um, you know, it, it also you know kind of tying a lot together is wh where's the valuation, right? You're you. I always tell breweries when they go out and like get that startup money, that is the most expensive money because your valuation is the least. If you go and raise that same half a million four or five years down the the road, you may only have to get five percent up. To get it at the beginning, you may have to give up 50%, right? And so it, it, it really kind of depends. You, you want to try and hold on to it as much as you can um, in the early going. And Jason, how are, go ahead, Maria. Well, can we talk about um, the need to you know retain majority ownership? Um, I think that's a really important topic that dovetails to this is that it's like you either have 51% or more or you've got, you know, might as well have nothing. Um, assuming that you want to retain control of the vision of the company, so I think that's like really important to hammer home is, is that you really do need to have at least 51% if you want to stay in charge. And also another thing is that some operating agreements require super majorities for major business decisions. Like if you're, you know, thinking about selling, you'll, you'll need a super majority, you know, vote on that. So maybe you want to retain 66 and two thirds percent, but just something to think about there is that you really don't want to, you know, give up more than, you know, you want to retain majority. So just because an investor may be what you think as a silent investor doesn't mean they might not always be silent. They're never, they're never silent. They're, they're never silent. Good advice there. <laughs> so I'm going to go back for a sec. Jason, you were talking about valuation quite a bit. And I would imagine a lot of breweries you know, might not go through that process. Where should they start if they're looking to get a valuation? Uh, there's a lot of really good people on the phone. I think both Maria and Audra could give you a back of the napkin, uh, side of it, uh, give you kind of some info on that, uh, if, if you want. And then, uh, it's funny because I just did a series on LinkedIn with Owen and we talked about valuation and structuring debt and things like that. So there are experts in the brewing industry that, um, you know, really can kind of go out and do that. But, um, what Maria and Audra are going to give you are, um, uh, probably good. And then if you really need something official on paper, it's going to cost you seven to $10,000 to kind of get to that point. Right. So if you've retained, you know, you're kind of already paying and retaining some services, you may be able to get some value out of that. But if you really need something super official, it's going to cost you a couple bucks. 
Awesome. Now we're out of the raising money portion of today's conversation. Let's talk a little about tax credits. While I know it's highly on a state-by-state -state basis, any recommendations for tax credit brewery owners should be looking for? Well, state specifically, I was reading in the, the thread on this on Facebook. I, I think the person who wrote the question was um, talking about state-specific credits. And they said, you know, like there are companies you can pay to, to find these credits for you. And I would argue, I mean, sure, for sure. But, you know, if you're working with a CPA who knows the state and knows the space, your CPA who, you know, presumably you already have a relationship with should be able to identify those as well. So um, you don't necessarily have to go out and find a specialist for this. Um, so I would start by talking with your CPA that you have now. And that person, you know, can be a good starting point. If that person doesn't really know the industry all that well, then they may not be the best resource. I also say um, state guilds are a good place to start as well. Um, I want to shift gears just a little bit about R&D credits because research and development credits are really, you know, super beneficial. They're very rich credits and that you don't necessarily need to have a specialist come in and, and look at your business and, you know, do a site visit and all this stuff. There are tons of companies out there that contact, contact breweries all the time about, you know, we can save you money. Let us come in and do a, a, a credit study for you. You don't have to have that to take advantage of the credit. However, it certainly can be valuable to ease the process because with R&D, Honestly, most of the legwork is in the record keeping to have clear, uh, consistent records. And if you have clear and consistent records, then you've got the documentation that you need to claim the credit on your taxes. However, the most common scenario is that, you know, breweries are operational for a couple of years and then they realize there's this credit out there and then they want to go back in time to claim it, which you can do. You can go back in time. And so like the the hard part is trying to go back and like recreate all this documentation in the past. So you're basically, you know, restructuring what happened in the past to get the right numbers. So it's more that you're paying for the organization and you're paying for the company to know what they're looking for. But I just wanted to point that out in this conversation too, is that you don't, you don't necessarily have to work with an R and D credit agency, although it can be beneficial at times. And then on the state credit side, um, I actually haven't ever come across specific companies that go find these state credits for you. So that was news to me. But uh, from my perspective, I would say start with your CPA. You guys might have other info. That's a great addition there. Audra? Um, I mean, I would also encourage uh, cost segregation studies that could be done as well, especially um, if, if you've been open for a few years. So a cost segregation study basically identifies and reclasses personal property asset to shorten the depreciation time for taxation. So you usually have an engineering company that comes in and a CPA and they both partner together and they reclass, redirect different assets into different lives. So um, it just it provides a lot of future benefit. It's not usually something that you would do um, as a startup. But I know that I worked with a brewery that um, worked with a CPA firm and engineering firm specifically for the study. The study itself cost 14 grand, but it provided $42,000 of benefit over the upcoming three years. And so that's something to also consider. It's not 
something that's like one and done, like the ERTC of what we have now, um, the Restaurant Revitalization Fund, other types of like one-time only credits. This is something that you're going to think about over the longer term. So I would encourage that, especially if you've been open for a while, to consider what a cost segregation study could do. If you're a real estate owner, definitely look into that. Awesome. On to the next question. Now, this one is honor in honor of our friend Carrie Shumway, who's on a beach right now. So, <laughs> Carrie, hope you're having a great time. We miss you here today. But Carrie always talks about tech stacks. How important is having brewery management software that integrates with your POS and suites like QuickBooks? Everybody's That's nodding their heads on that one. It's obviously <laughs> important, but let's speak to that for a minute. It's just like the engine, you know, it's the whole core of your, like, you know, a brewery is a manufacturing organization and the manufacturing component is like the, the lifeblood. And I always feel like if I look at financials and there's a problem, it's an operational problem. You know, like if you can shore up the operations that fixes the finance and you have to have the right tools at your disposal I mean, then there's a whole other layer of how competitive and volatile the industry is right now. So you have to have access to data that is actionable. And um, and and so I think the tech stack is incredibly important, making sure that things are, you know, set up correctly, that the stack has the capabilities to get you information quickly, accurately and in a way that you can draw conclusions from. And, you know, then there also has to be like a strong adoption rate in your organization, because if you put in a sophisticated, you know, tech solution and like everybody hates using it, well, that's just not going to be a good situation. So I don't know. Yeah. I mean, it's hugely important. Any recommended software you believe brewery owners should be considering? I don't know. You don't have to answer that question. I don't know. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, yeah. I want to make sure to be, you know. Do your like, research and see what works best for you. We'll yeah, and, and also talk to other breweries, talk to guild members, talk to, um, you know, CPAs or people in the industry who see this a lot. I mean, there's, I mean, I definitely have opinions. Um, and I'm sure if you ask, you know, 10 other breweries, you're going to get 10 other opinions too. But I think you do need to like do your due diligence, you know, think about not only where you are today, but where you want to be as a business in five years. And like, if you're thinking about making a change in a tech stack solution, build what you need five years from now, not what you need today, because it's just going to be, you know, you don't want to put yourself through headache more than you need to. Um, but yeah, do your due diligence, sit through the demos, thoughtfully think about your questions before you get in the demo. Think about what the capabilities are that you'll need in the future, what your current pain points are. Um, and it's and it's tough, I mean, because the good ones are expensive. And I think a lot of people try to band-aid through situations and it's just like, you're always gonna be stuck in fourth gear until you get the right solution. Right, I, I think to, to echo on that, Maria brought up a really good point. And when we talk to breweries and like early stage entrepreneurs in the brewing space, that tend to have a resistance to doing that. It's always based on this cost benefit, cost benefit analysis of like, look, I know how to run my brewery. Like this is like the value of the efficiency here. I don't think it's gonna make me more efficient and outweigh it. And Maria brought up with a really strong point that like the operational efficiency is kind of like the output of it. 
but the real reason to do it starts with the business intelligence and like the business intelligence tools to be able to have that data you'll realize like and be, be able to transparently see where those like you know holes in your funnel or clogs in like the operational efficiencies are that you just wouldn't notice without that and it just makes you better than through that you get the operational efficiencies Nick, I love your use of the word efficiencies because the past mm -hmm. few years we've seen, seen terms like technology and data appear so much more in these conversations in craft beer. But I think the next word we're really going to start to see a lot of it is efficiencies. You know, now that breweries are using all these softwares, trying to find the best ways to be even more efficient. So I think that's definitely something we're going to see more and more of. And I want to add on to that too is that really the, the efficiencies, knowing how many data repositories you truly have before you try to sync them together and understand how one clips into the other if you decide that you want to coordinate them to sync with each other. So typically a brewery is going to have a point of sale, an inventory management system, and a financial management system, unless you're further ahead and you have a true ERP. But for most of us, let's be honest, we're not going to be using a true ERP. So we have multiple data repositories. Well, how do they talk to each other? What? How does our chart of accounts look like? Is it aligned with the different line items that are sitting in our inventory management system? If it, if it isn't, if you try to sync them together, you're, you're going to get a lot of garbage information. So coming back to your financial management system, looking at your chart of accounts, refining them, um, making sure that it's aligned with the type of data that you want to capture from your inventory management system and your point of sale and then run a test scenario with it. And that is also going to take buy-in from everybody that is working at the brewery. So having at least the head of operations, the head of your tap room, provide the input of what is meaningful to them and how they would like to see it will then help you refine what your chart of accounts should look like because you're spending all these money, those money in tech solutions, it should be doing the work for you, but it doesn't automatically come that way. You have to define what your success metrics are and design the systems around those success metrics, test them before you release it into the wild. So a lot of inefficiencies, I think, happen from not enough planning happening and not enough refinement. They just want to click the button to sync everything and go. Well, it's not a magic solution. There never is. There's definitely some work that has to be done in order for them to talk together correctly. Yeah, you, you are not going to have like a hands-off solution. I think that's an important point. There's always legwork involved. And, you know, another thing to think about in, in systems and setup and chart of accounts is that, you know, as we become a beverage industry, not just a beer industry, you want to be able to clearly see profitability of different products and lines. So you want to see clear profitability of seltzer versus beer versus whatever. And also if you're in a contract brewing or AP situation, you want to see profitability of what you make in house versus contract versus AP. So to get that visibility, you need to have items that are set up well and which map to a financial statement that's set up for actionable use. And I, I think one thing that um, surprises business owners sometimes if they don't have an accounting background is that like every time that you change a chart of accounts, it's kind of like doing back surgery to your accounting reports. It's, you know, you don't want to just willy nilly make changes to the chart of accounts. They need to be well thought out and you need to think about all the, the downstream effects of changing them. So putting in time up front to think about how you want the outcome to be before you put it in place will pay dividends and also save you a lot of money and time and headaches. 
Awesome. Thanks, Maria. Now I want to dive into a more personalized question for all of you. You know, what are the burning questions your clients and breweries you interact with are currently asking you? Is there something you see appearing more than others right now or something that's more relevant in, in the current state of the world? Does anybody have a burning question asked by your current people you're interacting with? One thing that I get asked is like, how should we forecast for 2022? You know, do we forecast same as 19? You know, like it's like, how do we know what to expect as we're all waking up from this two year slumber that we just went through? So that's one big thing. I'm actually having the tech stack conversation with a ton of people right now. It's really interesting that you brought that up, but. I think breweries are definitely in starting to invest more in that side of their operation. It's great to see. Awesome. Well, I love reading books and I'm very curious what all of you are reading right now. It doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, a craft beer or finance related book, but if it is bonus points. So Nick, you are to the right of me. If you're not reading anything, a podcast is fine, but you know, something you're personally enjoying right now, or perhaps a recommendation for people that ties into today's conversation. For sure. Well, the last book I read um, pretty recently was uh, Boomerang by Michael Lewis, and it is not related to the craft beer industry. It's a bit of a boomerang back to like 2011, 2012, uh, kind of like the follow up to The Big Short, which I'm sure I saw the movie it was about the financial crisis. Super interesting. Love his writing style. It's about like it focuses on like seven um, different nations that like went ham during the financial like the mortgage crisis, like early in and just like the governmental institutions like backed and they built like like Iceland is an example, built from nothing, this massive financial institution based on this kind of gold rush. And it just does the boomerang factor like them, Greece, Ireland, a few of these countries and what happened, you know, the three or four years after and kind of like reconciling that. And I know that sounds a little nerdy, but the way he writes it is just super like entertaining and exciting. It's just a super like light 220 page read um, just to remind you that things were crazy before. And though we feel things are crazy now, like this is all cyclical. You make me want to read it. And more importantly, you make me want to go back to Iceland. Such a beautiful country. Beautiful country. Audra, you're up. What you're reading right now or any recommendations? Um, I'm going to Iceland in May, actually. So Are I'm you really going excited. for work or pleasure or a little of pleasure. both? Uh, it's our seven-year anniversary. So personally, um, we are going to be living out of a camper van for 11 days. So I'm pretty excited flying to Reykjavik, renting a camper van, and driving around the country and no no um, agenda at all. <laughs> um, I am so. I also am going going through Dave Grohl's um, uh, new book, which I absolutely love. But I'm doing that on as an audio because I do a lot of driving with my um, obligations. So I love to be able to listen to books on an audio format. But also, um, I'm serving as in a leadership position for a brewery in Denver, Colorado right now, and we meet weekly. And our director of marketing brought up um, Shibumi. It is a Japanese concept of quiet, confident leadership and um, how we can approach things with um, quiet elegance. So there's like there's the, the great degree of complexity that it appears to be simply elegant, but I don't know how else to capture that concept, but it is a Japanese term, um, Shibumi, and it has um, the actual first novel, I think came out in the seventies and it's talk. it's about like an assassin and how he applied Shibumi within um, what he was doing. But I'm looking at it from the business perspective. And I, I always want to continue developing as a, as a leader, both professionally and personally. And 
um, I brought that into the mix. So I've started to read on that, that whole topic of Shibumi. I love it. Thanks for sharing. Mm -hmm. Maria, do you have any time to read while you're out there in Hawaii? I do a lot of uh, audiobooks too. Um, but right now I'm reading The Men Who Stare at Goats, which was a movie like, oh, you have it? I read oh, it awesome. quite some time ago. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I think it was a movie like maybe 13 years ago. Um, but I watched the movie randomly recently and I realized it was based on a book. And so I was like, oh, wow, I want to read that. So I'm reading that right now, which is about this like secret part of the army that um, was developed in the 80s to use psychic powers for you know, their operations. So it's really sort of out there, but based on a true story. Well, it is a true story. The book is a true story. The movie's based on it. But anyway, so I'm reading that. And then um, my favorite podcast is Smartless. And I was listening to Smartless a couple weeks ago and Ron Howard was the guest. And then he has a new like memoir out. So I'm reading, I'm listening to that one on tape, which is actually really interesting. So those are mine. Good recommendations. Yeah, it's been a while since I've read that book, but I remember really enjoying it. And if my memory serves me correctly, I don't think I like the movie as much as the book, which is, you know, always always how it ends up. Yeah. Jason, do you ever have any time to read between raising a family and <laughs> hanging out on LinkedIn 24-7? And hanging out here. Um, so I, I and and it, it's funny that you say that because it's the I'm reading a book called The One Thing by Gary Keller. And it's a book about how do you prioritize there's no such thing as a work-life balance and all these kind of things, but it's, you know, and, and for me right now, it's, uh, you know, really important because it's trying to figure out what's that one thing that's going to make your day, you know, kind of the best day that it could be. And then, you know, sorting everything else after that. Awesome. And what's been your biggest takeaway so far from that? That you've applied to your life, I should say. Yeah. Um, so it, it is just uh, like I, I actually now like will actually write something down in the, in the morning and kind of circle it. Like there's actually something like as I've gone through this and said, hey, before the end of the day, I got to get this one thing done. Um, and then I can't end my day until that one thing's done. Now, in in theory, I should prioritize it and it should be the very first thing. But today it just didn't happen to be that that way. So it's it is prioritizing it and, and getting the one thing done, putting ink to paper to make sure I get it done. Awesome. Well, thanks, Jason. And thanks, everybody else. It's been a fun hanging out today. And I appreciate you letting me throw these rapid fire finance questions at you. And if anyone's looking to get in touch with you directly, Nick, you know, the best way to do it. Happy to take a personal email to Nick, N-I-C-K at mainvest.com. But you can also go onto the website, check out a bunch of the other breweries that are currently raising or past raises and uh, sign up. And one of our uh, business development guys will probably be in touch with you within the hour. And Audra, if anyone's looking to learn more, connect with you, how can they do that? Uh, Broodforherledger.com. I have a contact page through there because my last name is not easy to spell. <laughs> um, but that's probably the most common. Or you'll find me in like a, one of the Star Wars cosplayers groups as well. So I'm hiding and lurking around in there sometimes too. <laughs> I love it. Maria? Uh, email probably. And it's mpeerman at ghjadvisors.com. And Jason, last but not least. Yep. So uh, LinkedIn, you can find me there. Uh, the Brewery Banker is what it is, right? You can also... Uh, uh, I'm going to pick a bone with you right now because I've seen you use Brewery Banker. You've got Beer Banker. I've heard you put Craft Beverage Lender. Which one is it going to be? Well, and I'm trying to work on my hashtag, Beer Money. Like that's what I want to do for this year is work on my hashtag. But uh, Beer Bank, I don't know. Maybe I can switch it to Beer Banker, but it is... 
uh, brewery banker. LinkedIn's more formal than we are here. This is this is Facebooky. It's beer. That's brewery. It's the uh, pinky up is where we are on that one. Um, and then you can email me, Jason underscore Sleeman at UCBI.com. Well, everyone, I appreciate you putting your pinkies down today, hanging out for an hour. And I look forward to seeing you all in person. For all of you on the road, safe travels and talk to you all soon. Have a great day. Thanks. Bye. Thank you. We are proud to keep CBP 100% free and accessible to all. If you enjoy conversations like this, please hit the subscribe button.